Good morning. Trust you're doing passable today. And uh, I'm excited to dig into God's Word with you here this morning. And we are in our second week of our sermon series, Family of God on Mission, uh, looking through uh, that theme through the uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, looking at these two different movements of the church, the church as a family where we come together, belonging to one another, with an inward look towards each other, caring for each other, but not just a family that looks inward, but also a family that is on mission, that is concerned uh, about the world and has a mission moving out. So we wanna, we wanna hold these two things together, both a family of God, understanding our identity as that, and also being on mission together. And so that's the focus of our sermon series. We're looking through these different themes throughout various passages uh, in the book of Ephesians. And last week we looked at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, seeing how God has given the gift of grace to the church, which is the power of God that creates the family and then empowers us on mission together. This week we pick up right where we left off last week with Ephesians 2, 11 through the end of the chapter, looking at this gift of unity. God gives various gifts to the church to constitute us as a family, but also to empower us on mission. And just as he gave us the gift of grace, he also gives us the gift of unity. And as I was looking at this passage and beginning to contemplate, actually before the series began and was studying various uh, aspects of Ephesians and thinking about what we would talk about, uh, this gift of unity obviously makes a lot of sense as we consider the reality of being a family, as a congregation, as a family. But what really became plain as I really dug into this uh, passage is that the, the specific kind of unity that the Apostle Paul is talking about to 11 through the end of the chapter is the kind of unity that transcends ethnicity and culture and race. And that's very much in view here in this passage. Diversity and inclusion, of course, are buzzwords in our culture. And those on the far political left press for it aggressively. Those on the far political right resist it just as aggressively. And it's a sad truth that conversations around the issue of ethnicity and race and culture have become primarily, not exclusively, but primarily political issues uh, in our day and age. And the, the political climate has polarized in many ways the conversations that are around the issues of race and ethnicity. And even we as Christians who try to re remain somewhat removed from that politi politi politicalization of race have a hard time doing so. But long before American politics became politicized around the issue of race and diversity and then consequently polarized around these issues, in fact, 2,000 years before, to be precise, the inbreaking of the gospel had radical implications for the issues of diversity, race, and ethnicity. Just as grace is a gift from God that is the power by which the family of God is constituted and the power that that uh, propels us on mission, so too unity is a gift bestowed upon the church that binds us together as a congregation and empowers us for mission. And I'm not gonna try to say everything that can or should be said about the issue of race and ethnicity this morning. 
The subject of race, of course, is big, and it's probably even bigger in our North American context given our history of slavery. And it's perhaps even bigger now given the political climate. So there's a lot that needs to be said on this issue. What I'm going to try to do this morning is provide a biblical framework for thinking about Christian unity. In a remarkable way, perhaps in ways that many of us don't fully appreciate, the Christian faith was forged and born in the fires of racial tension and ethnic division. So as we look back to the early days of the Christian community and we see what the implication of the gospel was for the early Christians, it gives us a framework for thinking about our own day and age and the context in which we find ourselves. So what does our Christian faith teach us about unity, particularly in light of ethnic, cultural, and racial diversity? This, of course, is an important question for any local church. I think it's perhaps especially important for us, Calvary Memorial Church, situated in the community that we are situated in, surrounding communities as well. These are a very diverse area. There are other parts of the country, of course, that are less diverse and churches that are less diverse consequently, but but we live in a diverse community and have a relatively diverse church. So in light of the theme of our sermon series, In light of our ethnic and racial diversity as a church, and in light of the racial and ethnic diversity of our communities in which we live, we're going to seek to answer the following question. What is the gospel basis of our unity as a family? And how does this unity empower our mission? What is the gospel basis of our unity as a family? So we're answering the question about what is it that binds us together, Calvary Memorial Church, not asking questions about the larger culture. That's a legitimate question. It's a different question with a different answer, frankly. But we're asking the question about what is it that binds us together as a congregation, as a family, and then how does this unity, the basis of this unity, propel us on mission? Our text, which has already been read for us, is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And I want to say some words of context to to help us understand what's happening in this passage. You're going to have to spend a little bit more time than I normally do explaining the context. This sermon I've been concerned about because it's fairly teaching heavy before I get all the application. So are you guys ready for a little bit more teaching than normal? Okay, good. So just hang with me because all this I think is going to help crystallize and make sense of what this passage is saying. But we need to do our homework a bit to make sure we understand the context. All right, so to begin, Paul is writing this letter. Paul is a Jew, and he's writing primarily, we see it here particularly in verse 11, he's writing primarily to Gentiles or to non-Jews. Right? So we see that, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. Right? So he's recognizing that he's a Jew, he's, a Jew, he's writing to non-Jews. Now why is that important? Because historically, Jews and Gentiles did not play together very nicely. They could be cordial and respectful to each other at the best of times. They could be downright hostile to each other at the worst of times. But they were always other to the other. Jew and Gentile were always other to each other. But here's the thing. They were other to each other in large part because God had set it up that way. It's an interesting point to note. We need to understand why God had set it up that way, or we're not going to understand the fullness of what the gospel does here in this passage this morning. 
So we've got to go back to the very beginning when God constituted the Jewish people, which begins with Abraham, who is, the forf- who is the father of all the Jewish race that will come. So God made a covenant all the way back in the early pages of the, of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, he made a covenant promise to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants that Abraham would become a great people and that through Abraham who would be blessed by God and his family would be blessed by God, a blessing would come to all the nations of the earth. So Abraham would be blessed, his family would grow to be a great people, and through this blessing that had come upon Abraham, Abraham and his family would be a conduit for God's blessing to come to all the nations. Well, sure enough, Abraham's family grew into a great people. And as you read the pages of the Old Testament and the history of the people of Abraham and the nation of Israel, you see that Abraham's family grew to be a great people. But though they became numerous, many years were going to pass before the promised great blessing would be unleashed upon the nations. So between the giving of the promise in Genesis 12 and the actual fulfillment of the promise, the blessing that would pass from Abraham to the nations, between those two realities, which passed many hundreds and even thousands of years, God gave the Jewish people a law through the prophet Moses. So first there's the promise given to Abraham that he would be a blessing, that his family would be a blessing, and that this blessing would go to the nations. And then God gave a law through the prophet Moses. Now the law did primarily two things. The first thing that it did was that it prophetically pointed towards the coming of this blessing. This This blessing would come when Messiah would come, the one who would ultimately bring the long way to blessing and and deliver God's uh, grace into the whole world. That's the first thing. It prophetically pointed to that. But the second thing, and here's why I want to focus our attention this morning. The second thing that the law did was it served as a guardian that helped to preserve the people of God until the prophesied deliverance would come. So Paul Paul is writing here in Ephesians, but he talks more about this at length in Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul describes the law as a guardian to protect the people of God until the coming of Christ. Well, a guardian in the ancient world was a bit of a technical term. A guardian was often a household slave that would be brought in by a wealthy family that would serve much like we might think of a nanny whose job was to not only make sure that the kids had their teeth brushed and their hair combed and were put to bed at a decent time, but the job of the, of the guardian was to raise the children up into maturity and to prepare them for the responsibilities of adulthood. So Mary Poppins is making another run in the theater, and much like we might think of Mary Poppins, this was the function of the ancient guardian in an ancient household. And the Apostle Paul is saying that the law was like a guardian for the people of God. So the people of God are in their infancy, they're growing up into maturity, and they need someone to watch over them and to help uh, take care of them while they're growing up into their maturity. So towards this end, the law of Moses contained an extensive list of rules about how Abraham's children, his descendants, were to conduct themselves, particularly rules about how they were to interact, or rather not interact, with the Gentile world. So There's lots of rules in the law. The law technically is the first five books of the Bible. There's lots of rules in the law, but many of these rules in the law were given in a way that they separated the children of Israel from the Gentile world. Don't eat what the Gentiles eat. 
don't worship their gods, don't observe the same feast days. The basic logic of the law with respect to the Gentiles was something like this. If you hang out with idolaters, you will become an idolater. It was the function of the law was to separate the people of God from the Gentiles. So just like we as parents cocoon our children, so to speak, while they are young, to protect them from the world, so in that same way, the law cocooned the people of God to protect them from the idolatry of the Gentile world. So on the one hand, the law was a great blessing to the nation of Israel, just like a guardian or parents are a great blessing to children because it protected God's people from the pagan idolatry of the Gentile world. But it was also a statement about the spiritual immaturity of God's people. Essentially, what God was saying through the law was that the people of God were not strong enough to mix it up with the Gentiles without becoming like the Gentiles, to mix it up with people that worshiped other gods without themselves falling prey to worshiping these other gods. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he makes this comment about the law. He says that the law was not given to just and righteous people. Just and righteous people don't need the law. The law was given to those who were prone to wander away from God. Like someone with a weak immune system, the law quarantined the people of God away from the corruption of the Gentile world. So for centuries, indeed for more than a millennia, God always, God's people always had a clear sense of their own set-apartness with respect to the other peoples of the world. They were not to marry Gentiles, they were not to mix with Gentiles, eat with Gentiles, worship with Gentiles. The law given through Moses forbade all those kind of interactions. So we have this tension, do you see it? We have this tension in God's plan. On one hand, Abraham and his family have been blessed so that they can be a blessing to the world, the Gentile world. But on the other hand, because of their own weakness and still infancy and immaturity, they're quarantined by the law and required to live separate from the very Gentiles that God intends them to bless. So here God has raised up Abraham and blessed him and said, you're going to be a blessing to the Gentile world, but then given the law of Moses that has kept them back from the Gentile world. So for the, all of Israel's history, they have been held back from being the blessing that God intended Abraham to be. This is the situation when Jesus lands on the scene and begins to mix everything up. So look again now to our text. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.11 refers to the Gentiles as those who are called the uncircumcision, which is another way of saying Gentiles, by those who are the circumcision, that's the Jews. And remember, he says, that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. And then summing it up with this rather bleak phrase, without hope and without God in the world. But then Jesus, Paul says, through his sacrifice, has brought the Gentiles near. Well, near to what? Near to the commonwealth of Israel, which contained the covenant provinces. Near to the people of Abraham. Jesus, through his blood, has made peace, Paul is saying, between Jew and Gentile. 
And Paul says that he's preached peace to those that are far off. That's the Gentile who were always kept separate from the covenant promises. But he's also preached peace to those who are near. That's the Jew, those who were in faith waiting for the covenant promises to be fulfilled. He has made us one, the Apostle Paul says in verse 14. What is this? Who has been made one? The Jew and the Gentile have been made one. Jew and Gentile, God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility that since the days of Moses had separated Jew from Gentile. And God has now, in removing that dividing wall, has made one new man, Paul says. The dividing wall of hostility, of course, is a reference to the provisions of the law that forbade interaction between Jew and Gentile. But how has this happened? Here's the important question for us. How has this happened? Why is it that Jesus' sacrifice has rendered obsolete the dividing wall that separated Jew from Gentile? I think many of us probably have a quick ready answer for how Jesus' sacrifice has removed the dividing wall between us and God. But how has Jesus' sacrifice removed the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile? Let's think back to the original intent of the law that we just explored. And then think back to last week's sermon. But you say, I wasn't here last week. Well, that's on you. So... We think back to the point of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The salvation that Jesus brings is not merely forgiveness of sins. It's not merely an external cleansing that otherwise leaves us untouched. So the people of God in their infancy, in their spiritual weakness, were not fit to interact with the Gentile world. And when God brings Christ and his salvation, this salvation that comes doesn't leave God's people the same, but it begins to transform them. The the grace that God bestowed on his people through Christ is a power, as we see in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that matures us and raises us up. So ultimately, the spirit of God that is poured out on God's people is the beginning of the long-awaited promise of Abraham. Abraham's family was not prepared to go and bring a blessing to the world, but with the gift of Christ and his salvation and the unleashing of the Spirit of God upon the people of God, they are now raised up and mature. Christ, a descendant of Abraham, is himself the great life-giving blessing that was foretold that would come into the world. He is the one that matures God's people, as Paul is going to go on to say in chapter 4, which we'll look at in the coming weeks. And now that the blessing has finally come, the law's ordinances that separated Jew from Gentile are no longer needed. Just as we ideally raise children to a place of maturity so that they're free to move about the world without a chaperone, without a nanny, without a guardian, in that same way, God's Redemptive work through Christ has matured his people to the point that they no longer need the guardian of the law as a chaperone to keep them separated from the Gentile world. The need for the quarantine has ended. But here's the point. 
Not because the Gentiles are less corrupting, but because the people of God, through Jesus, have become less corruptible. Significant point. The command of God's people under the law had been primarily, come out from them and be separate. Keep your distance from them. But what is God's command to his people with Christ? Go into all the world. Go out into the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. You don't need to stay away from them anymore because I'm with you by the power of the Spirit and I will go with you into the world. Indeed, God's intent for his people was no longer stay away from the Gentiles lest they pollute you with death infecting sin, which is good news for us because we're Gentiles. But rather, go to the Gentiles and you infect them with the life-giving, life-changing power of the gospel. So the upshot of all of this was that both Jew and Gentile now had equal access to the Father through one spirit. The Jew and the Gentile, through Christ's sacrifice, had equal access to God because Christ's sacrifice had opened the way for Abraham's long-awaited blessing to crash upon the shores of the world. As a result, there emerged finally, as God had all along intended when he first gave that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, there has emerged one new man, one new people of God, no longer united or divided according to ethnicity and race, but all united by a common spirit, the spirit of God. Abraham's family had become to the nations at last the blessing that God intended. So we look back through the early pages of the church and the history of the church contained in the early pages of the New Testament. Jews remained Jews. They continued to live as Jews. Paul in the book of Acts even goes into the temple and offers sacrifices towards the end of the book of Acts. They didn't cease living as Jews and Gentiles continued to live as Gentiles. But both together both together came around and equally shared a participation in Jesus and the spirit of God that he had given. They shared the common meal, communion together, communing with one another as Jew and Gentile. Frankly, this took a little bit of getting used to. When you read the pages of Acts, this is very hard uh, for the Jewish people initially, the apostles included, to get their mind around what this really meant, that this that this division, this guardian that had protected them their whole lives was stepping back and was saying, now the Spirit of God is here and, and you no longer need to think of the Gentiles as unclean because the cleanliness inside of you by the Spirit can go out into the world and clean everything. Historically, the church hasn't always done this very well. But the basis and the ground of the church's unity, specifically a unity that transcends ethnic division, was established early on. And that's an important point to make because the unity that God gave to the, to the church, the unity that God had all along wanted since Genesis chapter 12, was a unity that transcended ethnic and racial divides. And this unity that begins with the sacrifice of Christ still holds true for us today. If the gospel overcame the Jew-Gentile divide, 
How much more does it overcome the intragentile divisions that we live with? We as a local congregation, just like the first century Jews and Gentiles, regardless of the very real and distinct ethnic and cultural realities that we bring into this church, and we do bring into this church very real and distinct ethnic realities, we are united to each other around the person and work of Jesus by a bond of our mutual participation in his transforming spirit that trumps all other things in our lives that would otherwise keep us apart. The Jew and the Gentile in the early centuries of the church didn't pretend that they were not Jew and not Gentile in order to come together. They came together, and this is the beauty of the gospel, they came together as Jew and Gentile to something that transcended those old divides. Insofar as I share in the Spirit of God, and insofar as you share in the Spirit of God, we share in each other. And even more, the bond that we have with each other, a bond that transcends ethnic divisions. Listen to this. It is the culmination of redemptive history. It is what God has been working toward ever since he made that first promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We sit as the people of God at the culmination of God's redemptive history to make one new man amongst all the nations, to transcend the old ethnic divides that have divided and fractured humanity since the early days of human history. So in light of that reality, who do you feel more akin to? It's a question for all of us to think about. Who do you feel more akin to? Do you feel more akin to a member of the body of Christ who shares a different ethnicity? Or do you feel more akin to someone who shares your ethnicity but not your faith in Christ? Because the natural tendency, the natural human tendency, is to feel akin to those who are like us naturally and in an earthy sense. But the power of God, the inbreaking of the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit in our lives calls us to recognize the truth that we are more akin to those who share the Spirit of God if we too share the Spirit of God. The gospel calls us to resist the forces on the political right that would threaten to pull us apart and divide us up along ethnic lines. And the gospel likewise calls us to resist the presumption on the political left that diversity is the invention of the Enlightenment and secular ideology. The Christian faith is in its very founding documents and ideology radically inclusive and has been ever since Jesus first rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Christianity wrote the book on inclusion. And we need to recognize that all the talk that is in the culture today about diversity and either for or against, Christianity is not coming late to that game. Our very beginning as a faith was established on the truth that all nations can come together in unity. All people can come together in unity around the person of Christ. However you may feel this morning, the truth of the matter is that you are closer and more bonded to a brother and sister in Christ who doesn't share your ethnicity or even your language or your culture 
than you are to a literal brother or sister who doesn't share your faith. It takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to live into that. Do you believe it, that the bond we have as Christians is an eternal bond? Take for a moment and consider, reflect on all your relationships and let that truth sink in. Are your actions and emotions, your emotions even, consistent with that belief? You may have a hard time understanding each other or seeing the world through the same lens. And reaching a place of understanding takes much effort and it takes a lot of work and it takes intentionality. But it begins with the recognition that we are already one in Christ. We don't become one in Christ through our own effort and striving. The gift of unity is a gift of grace given to the church. We are one in Christ because we are in Christ. We're not trying to create oneness. We're trying to live into the oneness that has already been purchased by Jesus in his blood. So as we consider what it means for us to be a family, we're not just a church made up of largely one ethnicity. We have a majority ethnicity, a majority race, but but we're a diverse congregation and we need to realize that our oneness transcends all the things that are normal for creating oneness in the world. That our oneness as a family and our care and regard and our concern for one another comes from who we are in Jesus because he has raised us up and given his spirit to us. And our loyalty and allegiance to each other and all that was represented here in the membership covenants that were made and that many of you have undertaken is a membership covenant based upon the reality of the shared unity that we have in Jesus. And then a word to be said here in closing about how this unity is central to our mission. Jesus, before he had offered himself up, before he had had sacrificed himself and his blood has been shed to, to unleash the spirit of God upon the church, when he was still with his disciples in John 17, he prayed that the world would believe in Jesus when they see the oneness that would come in God's people. Jesus wasn't thinking just about the oneness that would come from his Jewish brethren, praying that they would be one with each other. He was looking forward to what would happen when the Spirit of God came upon his people and they went out and became one with the Gentile world in him. Because that's a powerful testimony. It's a powerful testimony to the power of the gospel when when here you have two peoples, the Jew and the Gentile, who for so long, as long as their collective histories could remember, had remained separated, had now come together in common worship and faith. And Jesus says that's a powerful testimony about the reality of Jesus. The world will believe that Jesus came from the Father when the world sees you behaving as one with each other in ways that transcend all the normal divides that this world would give us. So we need to embrace this oneness here within our own congregation, not just so that we can be the family that God calls us to be, But we need to embrace this oneness with each other and work through all the difficulties and the challenges that come with it 
so that we could get on mission and be a light to this world so that they can see us and in our unity see what binds us together, which is the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? There's more work to do here on this point, of course, and I don't pretend that we've got this all figured out as a church or that I've got it all figured out. This is a conversation that we have had at the elder level a little bit and will continue to have. It's a conversation that's being had by uh, a prayer group here in the church, and we're going to continue to strive to living into the unity that already exists here because of Christ. And I would encourage you in your own ways to participate in that unity. And perhaps most fundamental for all of us is that we pray towards the realization of the embodiment of this unity, that we would we pray towards the capacity to live into and act out the unity that God has already given. It takes intentionality and it takes grace and takes forgiveness for each other, but it's something that is a powerful testimony to God's work in our life. Father, thank you for the gift of unity. Not the simple, superficial gift of unity that we can achieve without you. The unity that the world offers up as alternatives, but we thank you for the unity that comes to your people through the gift of your spirit. God, we thank you for this, this church and we thank you for the reality that we are one with each other in Christ and that because we are one with each other, we can in confidence move towards each other with openness, trusting in the power of the spirit to, to guide our conversations and to guide our interactions and to give us grace and wisdom and, and forgiveness for each other. Lord, help us to live into the unity that your son has purchased by his own blood. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.